Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. How are you doing today? I'm free. I'm free. I'm free at last. What does that mean? I'm on the road getting ready to go do some squatching. Nice. You headed anywhere in particular or are you just roaming? I'm heading out to pick up some camera gear up by uh, Auburn, California and some recording audio recording equipment. Then I'm picking up Sam and then we're meeting Rowdy and some other people up in Southern Oregon and finish up some filming. And then we're heading up to Washington to do some new filming stuff up there. With everybody in tow, Rowdy and the gang and everybody? Uh, just Sam's going to be with me the whole time. Rowdy's just going to be the Southern Oregon and head home. Oh, oh very cool. Will, 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 will I have the pleasure of seeing you while you pass through? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Are you going to use your trailer or do anything with that? <laughs> I got to come by and <laughs> check it out. <laughs> it's in good shape. Don't worry about it. It's in good shape. It's just is, my is, is it, I know. Is it taking up too much space? No, it's fine. I'm going to have to drag it out, though. I need to get the car out from behind it. But that's all right. That's just the life of Cliff, helping the bobs. Oh. Happy to do it. Don't worry about it. It's I all good. I feel bad. That's been in there a long time now. I'm definitely going to deal with it this summer, though, for sure. <laughs> okay. Okay. I, I would be surprised if that's the only belonging of yours that I have in my possession. Huh. You're at my heart. Yeah. Well, I went to the Ohio Bigfoot Conference this past weekend. Um, I know that this will be probably in a couple of weeks that we're actually airing this, but when we're recording it, I was just at the Ohio Conference last weekend. Good times, man. A good lineup. Moneymaker was there. Renee was there. Meldrum was there. Adam Davies was there. I was lurking around somewhere. Yeah, good times, good folks as usual. A couple interesting things happened too. We had, they're starting to do a town hall meeting, I guess, on Sunday, and a woman and her husband claimed to have seen a Sasquatch the day before in Salt Fork. Really? Yeah. So I went out and did an investigation there. And what was the place? It was like some Morton's Knob or something, some weird place like that. Not far from the um, the conference center. Um, I did find the location. I didn't find any sign. But while we were walking around down there, I went with Brandon Tennant and his son, Justin, and then Psychic Sonia. You remember her? Yeah. Yeah. While Sonia was walking around um, on the side of the hill, we got a series of very loud, pounding, knock-like things. Uh, It was in the evenings, probably five or six o'clock. So the sun was low, but still daylight. And just like went boom, 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 like maybe eight or nine of them in a row. And when we looked at the map, the direction they were coming from was across the the channel on the other side, uh, across across the channel of the lake. And there was a peninsula on the other side with nothing on it. No roads, no campsites, no nothing. And that's where it was coming from. So, you know, maybe they saw one. Maybe, maybe that's some affirmative uh, support for their claim, you know. I didn't find anything else, though. They could have. I mean, I've, I've heard them there a couple different times. I know they're there. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great spot. Absolutely great spot. But got to catch up with Don Keating as well. That was another highlight of the trip. How's he doing? Oh, he's good. He's good, man. He's he's starting to self-publish a couple of memoirs and um, history of Salt Fork or Bigfoot and Salt Fork. Um, but he's just always a pleasure. Oh, we also agreed to come on the show at some point, so we can look forward to speaking with him as well. Oh, right on. Yeah, last time I saw him was at the last OBC I went to, and they were all taking pictures when the thing was over. He's like, who are you? What are you up here for? Like, <laughs> uh, I, was, I was speaking just about 10 minutes ago, you know? <laughs> No, he's great. He's super great, super knowledgeable, and he's he's the godfather of Bigfoot in Ohio. Really? Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah it's no one better. Has been doing it longer, I think. And he, and what an encyclopedia of knowledge. Um, oh, this is kind of interesting too. Um, after after the gig, uh, I spent a few days with Seth Breedlove. Oh, cool. He went. He's you know he saw a Sasquatch last uh, August on this property and uh, they had a number of encounters between August and December, I guess, but just tons of sound stuff and a couple of visuals, if I understand things right. And he wanted to show me the property. Uh, nothing was happening. Nothing's been happening since December, I believe. Um, so we didn't hear anything or, you know, see anything. It was just a good time hanging out with Seth and the um, yeah. property owner. And, um, but we did do some scouting in an area and we went to a place over in Carroll, Carroll County, Carroll's County. Uh, and all the Ohioans are out there are going, you blew it, Cliff. That's not the name. Cause, uh, man, something about Ohioans, um, they identify everywhere with what County it is and what route it is. Yeah. Coshocton County off route seven or whatever they're saying. It's always County and roads for them, which I get for me. It's always geographic thing. Well, I guess those are geographic things, but you know, by this mountain or this river. Yeah. We don't, we don't say counties really. Cause our counties are so much bigger. Yeah, yeah, it's a little bit more um, precise for them. But we did, it was over by uh, Leesville Reservoir. If you want to look that up, everybody, you can look that up. And um, we're scouting an area, this this isolated little box canyon sort of thing at the end of a dead end road somewhere. Just one of these like nondescript, real deep, sharp sided um, canyons, I guess. Thickly wooded. We saw deer in there and the whole nine, just super, super squatchy. Just walking around and totally unsolicited, we got a vocalization just in the middle of the day. One wasn't in the middle of the day. It was like probably five o'clock at night or something. But um, yeah, just a totally unsolicited vocalization. Like what? Oh, well, well, I got it actually. I can send it to you. In fact, uh, insert it. That's what she said. Never mind. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I will text that to you right now. But when it first started, I go, oh, coyotes. And then it went and it was like uh, one of those rising and falling ones, like, like that when it started i said oh coyotes and i said oh wait a minute no that's an ambulance i was fooled and then as soon as it started descending i went that is no ambulance that is not an ambulance that's an organic sound which really kind of leaves the culprits uh, very you know to very few i should say and what brought you guys there seth had a report from there or is that no i think we're just looking around you know um I, something was happen. What, what was it I, I think it was just like well where could they go because the place where, where seth saw one it's not a place to hold them. You know, it seems like they'd be passing through there. Uh, A lot of rolling Hills with patches of woods, like so much of Ohio is right. Um, So I was saying, okay, well they're, they're probably not hanging out here. So where would they be hanging out? And I think we dug into a map and, uh, and dug that out basically and say, well, that looks pretty good. And this this is actually not that far away. So um, maybe that's where they are. And then we took a look and well, we got, we got something there. That's awesome. Here's the sound, by the way. We'll, we'll play that for you now. Seth was uh, recording. I guess I'm going to be on one of these episodes or something. Like he was filming while we were out there poking around. Um, so, he, and luckily, his camera was rolling when the vocalization happened, and um, oh, awesome. so you can hear it right here. 
Were you recording that? Yeah. Good. It's definitely out of place. I thought it was a siren at first. Yeah, so did I. Is it just that one siren sound? Yep, just that one siren sound. It never happened again. And it was coming from the direction of the forest which surrounds the lake. Man, I really thought that was a siren till the very end. Yeah, but I mean, maybe it was a siren, but I think it's very unusual from the direction it was coming from. And also the fact that it didn't repeat at all. No. And it just says that one thing. Yeah, the end is what makes it sound. I would, have, I would have just thought siren if it wasn't for the end part. Yeah, yeah. Well, it fooled me for a second or two, but I think that might have been one, man. It's just so weird. And it sounded in person, you know, it sounded very organic the second half. I see coyote, ambulance, no ambulance. Oh, shoot, that's not an ambulance. But, you know, I could be wrong. I'm wrong all the time. You know what was really nice about the Ohio Conference of Bobes is I, I saw a lot of our new T-shirt there. Oh, really? Yeah, like, I mean, a lot. Maybe three or four people were sporting it, and that means probably a couple more of them have it. And like we claimed, I mean, this is not false advertising. The people looked wonderful. They looked great. I mean, <laughs> our shirt looks amazing on everybody. That's awesome. It, it brings out the orange in their eyes. <laughs> yeah, so if, if you want to get a hold of one of our Bigfoot and Beyond brand new design t-shirts, go check out sasquatchprints.com. Sasquatchprints.com. And everybody was looking good in it. Yeah, Brandon's a good guy. And like, he's not one of those guys that he gets an order and waits a couple weeks to fill it. He gets the order, fills it, ships it right out. Yeah, yeah. We're very, very lucky to have a, a t-shirt manufacturer willing to do what what do they call drop shipment or something. I don't know what it is, but they're, the, he ships it out and we don't handle anything at all. It's kind of nice to be a, a total lack of responsibility the way that both you and I prefer it. Oh, you know it. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it was a good conference. It was a really, really good conference. So I, that, that, that was my weekend. I know that took a long time, but you know we're just hanging out talking. You know, yeah. A lot of people are listening to us driving to work. We're just killing their time too. Yeah, but heard heard a bunch of new uh, reports and stuff like that from the area. Oh, speaking of which, um, we have a voicemail link on our webpage now, Bobes. I don't know if you know about that or if our listeners know about that. You can make a report of sighting or encounter you had. Yeah, yeah, we've got a couple different ways to contact us. There is a, a submission, like a report submission form on our website, bigfootandbeyondpodcast.com. But there's also a brand new voicemail link for the people who perhaps don't type as well as others. So they can um, hit that and it does a mic test on your laptop or whatever you have. And then you can record a short, I'm going to emphasize short um, version of your sighting or if you have questions for us or if you want to compliment us somehow and say that we're lovely people, you're welcome to do that as well. Yeah, they'll have 90 seconds to spit out whatever they got on them. Which is unfortunate because if you're going to talk about how nice and lovely you and I are, Bobes, you're going to need more than 90 <laughs> seconds. So you can always call back and do two. If you want to hear your voice on our podcast, send us in questions, comments, sightings. We'd be glad to listen and play it if it's going to be one of the questions we're going to use for our Q&A. Or compliments. Again, compliments. Yeah. We're, we're in desperate need of a positive reinforcement here. So there you go. Yeah, that, that's pretty much what we have. And of course, gosh, what a, what a long preamble to a Q&A. This is actually a Q&A episode, Bobes. I got a question. When the hell are we going to start the show? Yeah, seriously. What's wrong with you? That's my question. What's wrong with us? <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the first question, Bobes. I'm going to go ahead and take this one. And it is from Chris Flavin. When doing things in the field, like wood knocks or vocalizations, are you ever suspicious that other squatchers or people are knocking or doing yells back instead of actual animals? Sometimes. It depends where we are. I mean, not, not when I'm at my place. Where, I'm at, where I go normally, no, I'm not worried about that. 
Um, it's never happened in those places. It's happened to us at Pennsylvania, and it happened to us in Ohio when we were filming. But I don't think it's ever happened to anyone to stop doing. There's been knocks. I've never been like thought that was a Sasquatch and then found people. I mean, I've heard knocks and stuff, and going, "What was that?" Then you know, later on, you see there's someone cutting firewood a half mile down the road or something or whatever it may be. Yeah, and the places I go, we're pretty certain no one's there. I mean, the blueberry bog, for example, there's only two ways to get to our zone, um, two roads in, and there's only four or five suitable camp places you could be. So every time I go there, the first thing I do, even before I set up camp, is I drive to other all those other places. And it literally takes less than 10 minutes. This is a right. small, confined area with a bunch of dead ends. So I, I drive all, to all those different areas and see if anybody's around. Because if they're there, I'm not going to be there. I'm going to go explore and find a new spot or something. I generally tend to go to the Blueberry Bog in particular if I'm the only one there. Exactly. And of course, Bobo, you've been there. You've been also to um, Will Call Hill over um, yeah. on Mount Hood. You can find out pretty quick if somebody's there too. Exactly. That's what I said. When I said I've never felt like I've you know, how that happens because there's been several dozens of times where I see their vehicles or there's a sign of a camp or I see smoke or something down in the mountain. I'll just move. Yeah. And a lot of times you can hear people too, if they're not too far away. Um, trees do absorb kind of a lot of noise, I guess. But if you're, if they're camping and hanging out and such, um, you can hear them, um, which of course I believe is also what Sasquatches are doing with us. They keep track of us, I, in my opinion, largely by sound not by looking to see what we're doing. We're actually, they're actually listening to see what we're doing. So yeah, it, it's not that difficult to actually find out if we're the only ones there or not. So this doesn't really happen to me because of the preparations I make and the cautions. I, I take the precautions, I should say. Right. See our next one here. We got Chad Callahan. Do you guys know what happened to the skookum cows? Does it still exist? Yes. Oh, yeah. 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 It's in Rick Knoll's garage. Don't you have a copy? I don't have a copy. I have a copy of The Heel. Uh, Moneymaker gave me a copy of just The Heel years ago and then let me uh, you know, uh, make a copy of it and do whatever I want with it. He was very specific about that. And, of course, the, um, the cast is actually legally owned by, I suppose, uh, Derek Randall's, um, Dr. Leroy Fish's, I guess, heirs, because um, Dr. Leroy Fish passed away, of course, and then Rick Knoll. Um, a few months ago, maybe last year, I don't know. I've got a pretty elastic sense of time. Um, Tom Powell reached out to Rick Knoll and just, you know, remade contact with them. And I guess uh, he told me afterwards, he mentioned about, you know, the North American Bigfoot Center here in the museum and um, suggested that perhaps we put it on display at some point in the museum, the, the original. And yeah. Rick seemed, um, according to Tom Powell, Rick seemed pretty open to that. So um, we're kind of looking at what, when to best do that. And I'm thinking since the Skookum cast was September, what was it, 22nd, um, 2000, I think it was, or was it 2001? I think it was 2000. 2000 sounds right. Yeah, I think, I think so. I think so. But um, I remember it was a 22nd because that's the equinox. And it's also um, Bilbo and Frodo Baggins' birthday, I might add. Huh. But um, I know, I know. But still, um, maybe, maybe the 25th anniversary would be a good year to display that here. I don't know. I don't know. Kind of thinking about that right now. We got a lot going on at the museum at the moment, but to make room for the Skookum cast would be kind of neat. That'd be really cool. You know, I've seen it several times. I got to examine it. I don't think I've ever seen the original. I've never seen the original, just the copies. So I've seen the positive and the negative versions of that, like where it's the actual view you got looking at it, where it's imprinted in the ground. And they also have the one, which is really interesting when you pull the mold out and you flip it upside down. You got the other reverse look at it. It's, when you see them side by side, it's really cool. 
Yeah, you know, that, that's, that's something that struck me years ago. And I'm sure you've seen the same thing in my garage and other places. When I started copying footprints and making latex molds of them, I was so impressed with the way they actually, the molds themselves looked because it's, it's a replica of the impression in the ground. And that gave me a, a completely different perspective on footprint casts. Um, it's just so interesting because you know it's one thing to look at the cast, but you have to switch your brain around a little bit to see that this is a hole in the ground, not a lump of plaster. Um, but when you have the latex mold there that you pour the, the liquid plaster in before it dries and make the make the cast, um, that actually is the shape of the ground. And I always thought that was very very cool, um, downright impressive. If you uh, pardon me. <laughs> Nice clip. You got one in already. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. All right. The next question is from Todd Lovelace. Your podcast intro jingle has to be one of the best podcast tunes I've ever heard. I find myself singing it all the time for some reason. I'm wondering if you could tell us all how it came to be. Who wrote it and recorded it? Can you tell us the story behind its production? It's just some crap we threw together. I know. It's mostly bathroom bathroom noises. <laughs> I'm totally kidding, of course. Yeah, Matt Pruitt um, uh, uh, wrote and sang and produced that particular song. Um, the previous song was written by one of Bobo's friends. Uh, who was that, Bobes? Sutton James Papa Nicholas. <laughs> nice. That's a rad name. Um, yeah, so that was our previous um, previous uh, jingle, I guess, if you want to call it. But we changed it over so they have some words about our podcast, and that that's all. T- that's all Matt Pruitt. Uh, that's catchy. I, I'm like, damn that song that I'm singing it all the time. <laughs> damn you, Matt Pruitt! <laughs> Stop making such catchy tunes. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Sonidos of our music. Sonidos of our voices. Sonidos of our stories. Listen to the sounds and voices of Latin music and culture with Pandora stations like RMX, La Vida en Pop, El Pulso, and Satellites, and podcasts like Ruby Rosa and more. From music to stories, all that we are is in the sonidos of our culture. Listen now on Pandora. Tara Smith, my family and I have been doing a massive Finding Bigfoot binge. We discovered the show while in a hotel in Yosemite. Anyway, one thing we are always curious about is how you guys would decide who would pair off with one another on the night investigations. Producers just rotated us so we didn't, because it would have been, me and Cliff probably would have just went out every night together. <laughs> but they, uh, they, rotate, they rotated us so we were evenly balanced. Yeah, you know, the producers are always looking for the best TV, you know, the best interaction, the best chemistry, the best story, all that sort of stuff, while we just look for Sasquatches, basically. So, um, you know, I think everybody listening knows that Bobo and I are very good friends. You know, we've been friends for a long time, you know, brothers from, uh, from other mothers. Um, but Matt and Renee together have a certain sort of fireworky sort of chemistry how they're always kind of gnawing at each other and poking each other and, you know, just being downright ornery and not getting along. And, you know, that may not be comfortable for Matt or Renee, but uh, it makes for good TV. 
So um, Bobo and I were probably together because Matt and Renee do not so well together often, you know, but and it, it, that's kind of a fun way to contrast the team. But, you know, when um, but Matt and I together or Renee and I together just seem to do just fine. And um, they like the different chemistries that are produced by mixing uh, us together in their al- alchemical television mixing cups. Like during the interviews, they were always prodding like, so Matt would like give you these leading questions, like wa- wanting me to heckle Matt all the time. And if they were ever like mad at us, like we were being a pain in the ass, they'd load up questions like to heckle us from the other someone else on the cast. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like they're their revenge in a way because any one of us on any given night could be very very difficult to work with. They never did it once with you, Cliff. Never once. They never said. Would think Cl- Cliff really screwed up there, didn't he? You know or. Whatever. <laughs> no, no, no. I've heard. Well, I don't know. Maybe uh, Moneymaker just threw me in a bus anyway. I've heard some <laughs> some pretty harsh pokes from Moneymaker before. Those were unprovoked. <laughs> it's just in his nature, maybe. Perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, they would certainly ask us. Like they would say, "Well, Matt said this. What do you think of that? Is that even possible? Or Bobo, what do you think of this bo- thing that Bobo said? Or should Bobo have done that? Or?" Renee says that couldn't have happened, Cliff. What do you th- just to get a little bit of a um, tension, I guess, you know, in, in us. But and it was all okay too, you know, because at the end of the day, we didn't always like each other, but we always loved each other. We're, we're road family, is what it comes down to. We, you can't yeah. pick your family, and you can't pick your road family. And we're forced to get along. And through nine grueling years of doing this show, we learned how to do it. So we're all friends and we all love each other and we're all brothers and sisters in this weird sort of dysfunctional way. So um, it was okay that they did that to any one of us, I think. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. The next question um, is his name is Jack and that's all we have. Jack asks, I'm wondering if you've ever seen tracks that were either pigeon toed or duck footed. It would seem to me that since they apparently climb trees, they would tend to be duck footed, but I'm curious to see if that has been looked at. I've seen photos of trackways that are a little bit duck-footed, but never pigeon-toed. Yeah, yeah, I've never seen the pigeon-toed one, um, and again, slightly duck-footed, but most of the time they're pretty linear, you know? I think if they weren't, I mean, they're built for exactly that environment, if, if they're not, if they're like, you know, born handicapped or something, they just don't make it, I don't think. Yeah, and you know, it's something else, too, um, that this kind of brings up a, a, a tangential topic, this whole tightrope walking thing that um, everybody in the Bigfoot community seems to be aware of. Um, I want to make it very clear that that is overblown. There is always straddle, always, just a little bit, but always straddle. If you find um, impressions in snow that are large, that are exactly in a straight line, those are almost certainly some animal hopping through the snow, not a Sasquatch. It being in a completely perfectly straight line is actually not evidence for Sasquatch prints in my opinion. And, uh, I've talked to Meldrum about it. He seems to be on the same page as me as well. So it's not just me. Um, there's always some straddle. Yeah. They're usually pointing straight ahead, but yeah, a little bit off to the side of each one or another. But I mean, for how wide their hips are and everything, they're pretty tight ropeish looking, you know, like the foot kind of comes down a little more maybe center line than ours do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and there's, there's a reason for that. The reason is uh, center of gravity. Because they are big, wide animals, like you said, um, which is why also the the, the Patterson Gimlin film creature, the the only really good example of a female that we have on camera, um, doesn't have uh, very wide hips like a human female might for her proportions. It's more of a male hip situation, even though she is pear shaped. A lot of people ignore that, but she is pear shaped. Her hips are wider by about two or three inches than her chest is. 
you know, from just on, on the back, you know, that one vertical or that one plane, I should say. Um, but, and that's, Krantz addresses this in his book, uh, Bigfoot Sasquatch Evidence, which is a must read for all of our listeners. Um, and it, it has to do with center of gravity because uh, if, if their hips were wider, then they'd waddle back and forth. And that also is part of the reason they have such an, a linear gait. Um, it isn't exactly tightrope. Um, I, I'll call it that, but you know, but it's not exactly tightrope, and that that is overblown in the Bigfoot community. But that is another reason for that is to keep their center of gravity going. Chris Tierney wants to know. I recently watched the Squatching in the Ozarks episode. Is there a reason you didn't further investigate the story of the guy who shot one Sasquatch as a child on the episode? Did you investigate it further off screen? It must have been a town hall story. Yeah, we were at town hall in Missouri, and. Uh, the kid came in and his dad was off camera. I talked to the dad off camera. I kept in touch with him for a while. I told him, I mean, he was so shaken up by it. Um, we couldn't, there was a few reasons we didn't have a film permit to go where it was located. But ta- I've talked to him several times after that. And that guy, he was telling the truth as far as I'm concerned. He was definitely telling the truth because he was traumatized. His dad, his dad wasn't really that freaked out because he didn't see it. He, he heard it all. The, he heard it all go down, but he didn't see anything. So it, didn't affect him like it affected his son, but his son was 16 or 17 years old and looks at the scope and the thing just roars at him through the scope. Then it's about a hundred yards away and it sprints 50 yards across that dry riverbed in like less than three seconds, which is sounds crazy, but yeah, they can run a 40 yard dash in under three seconds. And uh, he just squeezed the trigger out of just sheer panic, just squeezed one off. And his, you know, that's another thing I always said, Talk about with uh, Justin, the Sierra Kills story back in whatever that was, 2010 or 11. They described the exact same thing. And I've heard it from like three or four other people that have said they shot him. How when they get up, they get it like into a, str- a sprinter's position, like both hands down in front of them. And then one leg forward, one leg back. And then they jump up and push off. Listening to his description was just like Justin's description. How it you know took off, ran for like a hundred, couple hundred yards and crashed in the brush. Well, I'm glad you followed up on it because I didn't have any further contact with those witnesses. Yeah, and the number changed and I lost contact with them. Well, if they're out there, you can, you can always uh, shoot us an email. <laughs> Bigfoot be on podcast at gmail.com and get back in touch with Bobes. Yeah, I'd love to hear him tell this whole story again. Yeah, you never know who's listening. I think a lot of people, I think a lot of our witnesses from the show probably listen. Yeah, I've gotten some emails saying that. Yeah, I'd like to think that at least. I sure <laughs> appreciate them. So. Okay, the next one is from um, Joey Harmon. When squatching, some say it's best to be as quiet as possible so that Bigfoots aren't scared away. Others say it's best to be loud and interesting to pique their curiosity. Is there a better overall format? I think having some people loud in camp is great than other people outside of camp sitting there quiet listening and got some auto recording going and have a therm. Like, I think those guys should be quiet or women. But I, I think it, I think it's fine to have just a normal camp like you know like you're out there having a good time and if you got kids all the better yeah um, i think the largest percentage of people who observe sasquatches who actually see them um, are campers i think it's campers and then drivers and then hunters but i could be wrong about that but those are certainly the top three i would imagine those have to be the top three but most people who see them are camping that's that's all they're doing and um which kind of lends to the idea of being interesting and loud yeah, for sure. But it's always great. Like us, well, we're out there with specifically for a purpose, you know, squatching. But if you got like a, a loud camp and you just peel off, get 100 yards outside of camp and sit there dead quiet, no lights, 
no radios, just sit there quiet. They might creep up near you. You never know. I mean, I've had it happen to me. You know, the two times that I uh, two times that we got very close to, to actually filming these things on the show, we were doing both of those things. One was, of course, in Mohican State Park, I think, in uh, Ohio, when um, we had the Little League team with us. Yep. You and Renee were down with the kids on the trail, and then Matt and I were on the slopes of the hill above. Um, I think we got within probably 150, 200 feet of one of these things, based on the knocks I heard. We just didn't get any closer, and we couldn't see it because of the terrain. And then, of course, the other one was in, um, was it, Tennessee. Was it Frozen Head? Tennessee, Frozen Head, yeah. Um, same thing. Adam Foskey was filming me up on the side of the hill. You were on the opposite hillside, and Renee and Matt were down there singing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, and all sorts of crazy nonsense that came out of their heads. And again, I, I think it was a combination of both, where the, the loud group got the attention of the Sasquatches, and they kind of ignored the, the quiet group up on the hill. I think that yeah. that would be a very, very uh, interesting, I guess, tact to take with them, you know, the, the strategy to deploy. Um, but I will say this on, on finding Bigfoot, people always criticize us for not being quiet and slinky and stuff. We couldn't, we just couldn't because you may be seeing Bobo and I on camera, but there's a camera guy, there's a producer, there's a sound guy, and maybe even another producer. There's five people there, six people sometimes. And every 45 minutes we have to break down for changing the batteries out and changing the cards out and changing the IRs out. So there's all this commotion right there. And and it's just impossible to stay quiet in those circumstances. So we were forced to do the other way, like the extreme other way. We drew attention. And besides, we had, we had two or three nights a week to try to get Sasquatches to come in and make noise or get them on camera. That that's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of pressure. It's, it's bad enough trying to find a Sasquatch with no time constraints. But if you have one night to do it, you got to go in loud, you know, ma- making all sorts of noise and commotion just to stir them up and see what they're going to do. Um, a lot of people didn't really appreciate that, I think, uh, nope. the difficulties of finding a Sasquatch on camera in front of a million people who are going to watch on some Sunday night. And you got to do it because that's the pressure. And, you know, we batted, what, 50%? That's really good. I don't think people give us enough credit sometimes, you know? Like, you go find a Sasquatch. I'll give you a week. You go find one. Do your best. We got one night to do it. And we're on camera doing it, putting ourselves out there for ridicule and criticism and all that sort of stuff. That's a lot of pressure. I didn't feel it. No, you didn't feel it. I don't accept your expectations. (laughs) (laughs) Up yours, viewing audience. It wasn't that. I was just, I was like, whatever. But um, <laughs> we got a follow-up question from, or comment from Dan Witte. Um, Hey guys, you guys rock. Thank you very much, Dan. How long does a uh, juvenile Sasquatch typically stay with its parents before leaving the nest? And also, do we know anything about how they find or uh, choose mates? P.S. I started peeing off my deck at night. That's awesome. Cheers. I'm glad we could help. We steered one guy in the right direction, peeing off his deck at night. That's first step a squasher should take to have an oh yeah encounter. it's a sign of freedom you know i think the more the more free you are to pee off your own deck at night then like the more free you are as a person and how do they choose their mates they look for the richest guy biggest stockpile of deer carcasses um <laughs> no i don't know i think it's probably just like all the other mammal like upper primates and you know watched gorillas chimps orangutans humans whatever uh, or most any mammal species 
I don't know. I mean, we, these are all good questions. We don't have good answers for them. Um, but I would suspect that they probably find each other by these loud vocalizations. That's a behavior that's uh, noted in orangutans for the same reason. So uh, well, the orangutans, big, these big booming vocalizations to keep the other males out of their harem, essentially, is what that comes down to. So it probably has something to do with the vocalizations. We don't know. Um, and do they have a breeding cycle? Is there a certain time of year? Is it Valentine's Day? They get all, all jiggy with each other. I don't, I don't really know. And who they have exposure to. Yeah. 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 I mean, so, cause really it has to do not so much with when they're feeling frisky, but really more when the, um, the infant will be born. When will that favor survival? One would think springtime, right? Yeah. Yeah, because with springtime, things are starting to bloom and everything's starting to roll. And, you know, so and, and then wintertime, well, you see, if they're born in spring, so what, what, March, let's just say March, nine months previous, what is that, June or something like that? Maybe yeah. that's the breeding season or do they have a breeding season? A lot of primates don't. Humans don't, for example, you know, so we don't really know these sort of things. And it's not much to be said in the other ape species, although your first question how long does a juvenile Sasquatch stay with its parents before, quote unquote, leaving the nest? Don't know that one either. Um, but based on observations, there seem to be adults or subadults in tow with other ones still, because there have been multiple Sasquatches seen at the same time. So one would think that probably teenage for a Sasquatch, and of course, teenage would imply you know 13 14 15 that's what we call it that but that's different in humans than it would be in sasquatches uh, adolescence in sasquatches is probably earlier because they they don't have the extended growth period based on their brain size yeah they've got big brains but their brains are different than humans they're lacking a lot of the human parts of the brain at least visually that can be surmised based on the patterson gimlin film they seem to have a much more ape-like brain Therefore, we can assume or at least uh, guess, speculate that they have a much more ape-like uh, growth pattern, I suppose, which probably means they stick around until, I don't know, between 7 and 12 or something. That's what I always heard. Eight, I heard 8 to 11 is what the natives told me, like around 8 to 11. Oh, okay. So there's a different line of uh, evidence, the, the native knowledge about these animals um, that would suggest the same thing. Um, that, and that lines really, really well with the other ape species. So there's no reason to think that w- they would be any different. Good question, so. Yeah, yeah, good stuff, man. This is a good episode so far. I'm enjoying it. This next question is from Hernan Delfino. I'm from Chile, and I think I may be the only fan of your podcast here in this part of the world. Oh, gosh, I hope that's not true. But It's not true. We got like four or five listeners down there. Oh, bienvenidos. What do you guys think about categorizing the Sasquatch species when the moment comes as a flagship species or an umbrella species? I think that it is really interesting to see the opportunity that we are going to have when the species is officially discovered to use it from a conservation point of view. Oh, I don't, I don't think there's any other option. I, I think it's going to happen naturally. I often say that, hey, when Sasquatches are proven to be real animals to everybody beyond a shadow of a doubt, academia included, Smokey the Bear is done. Because what, 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 better, uh, what better animal mascot would there be for preserving the habitat, our own habitat, human habitat, um, that we find right outside of town than a Sasquatch? Ironically, I think that the discovery of the Sasquatch will eventually lead us humans to leaving smaller footprints on the planet, metaphorically. 
yeah, I, th- I think definitely Sasquatches are going to be used all over the place by uh, conservation groups and government and forest service. And it's already being used here in the state of Oregon. The Oregon State Fire Marshal uses Sasquatches on their, uh, you know, just extinguish it sort of um, uh, advertising campaign about anti-wild wildfire stuff. You know, make sure that your fire is out, make sure that you are fire safe, all that sort of stuff. Sasquatch is the poster child for that advertising campaign. So that's just the tip of the iceberg. Once these things are real, they're going to be everywhere for everything. Yeah, you know, speaking of Chile... We're, they're asking us for you know advice on international episode locations. I was pitching South Chile, like down the Patagonia area, because I uh, met these fishing guys. There's a, a couple. They did like trout tours down there or something, and they had three people they knew personally that had seen them. You know, there's local lore about them, and also the there's also claims of remnant species of giant sloth may still be down in that area. But we, uh, I got a hold of those people. They moved out of the area. They moved back up to Canada, and the other people down there were just too hard to get a hold of. Like it, it just was too too big of a risk to go down there. To it was super expensive and it's really hard to access, and it didn't work out. But I would have loved to go check out down there for the South American, like Southern Chile version of the Bigfoot. Yeah, they're in there for sure. I, th- I think I think it was Kathy Kathy uh, Strain that got together a bunch of um, terms that the local people use for Sasquatch-like animals reported all throughout South America. Yeah, and South America is an untapped area as far as stories and lore and mythology and folklore and actual. Uh, data of sightings of these animals. And Jane Goodall, I know, has um, recorded some observations from Ecuador. But, but Hernan, man, if, if this is your gig, man, start asking around. Start asking around in rural areas. You'll be very surprised. It won't take too long um, to find somebody who's seen something. And when we're when we we're in Brazil, we would ask people if they'd seen things. They would describe them as, um, yeah, a, a, mon- a big monkey standing upright, walking on two legs, but it didn't have a tail. Maybe that's a good starting point for your own investigations, because if you can start gathering stories, even if you gather 50 stories together, and that might take years and years and years, depending on how open people are down there, and you just put them out in a compilation, like a PDF or made a website or a blog or a book or anything like that, you'd be amongst the first to do that in South America. It is a wide open field with nobody doing anything as far as I know. So Hernan, and if you're interested in that, go for it. I would love to start hearing about Sasquatches in South America. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Christian Roper writes, I've just returned from a research trip to Central America. Oh, I spent the majority of my time connecting with the indigenous Mayan populations of Guatemala, hoping to document Stories passed down of a lost Mayan city. But as I traveled to the Mayan villages, I began to hear a lot about El Sisimite. How do you say that, Cliff? Pronounce yeah, that's it? right. El Sisimite. That's what I thought, yeah. The Central American version of Sasquatch. If one of these worldwide Bigfoot variations, a year and Yowie, et cetera, is discovered, how would that shift the needle of public opinion uh, here on the North American Bigfoot? Oh, it solidified. I mean, it would it opened a lot of eyes. I mean, people would be much more, I mean, if, if they found a Yeti over in Nepal, for instance, of course, that would just be a boon to Bigfoot research. I mean, there'd be a lot of real scientists getting on board and funded expeditions, you know, with the proper equipment and funding. I mean, 
yeah, it'd be it'd be a boon for Bigfoot research. Yeah, and of course, South America or Central America and South America, that would also do a lot because you know that's generally thought to get to Central America, you got to pass through North America. So it just makes sense that they would be here. So if the Sisamite from um, Central America, Guatemala, and that general area um, ends up being real, like if, if proof is brought in, um, that would do a lot for uh, North America. Although there would still be skeptical hangers on, you know, saying, I don't know, they're down, it's so much more wild down there than it is up here, which is nonsense, of course. Um, it, there's no land up here left, which is also nonsense. You know, so people would still hold on to their beliefs. Uh, that's the bad thing about beliefs. Beliefs are thinking something is true despite a lack of evidence. Um, I prefer to go with the evidence myself, but um, it, it, their beliefs would get would would take hold, you know. Because you look at the more common beliefs, and people believe in I don't know, say religion or politics. And I, it doesn't matter what flavor of religion or politics, by the way. People believe that stuff, and even in the face of absolute proof to the contrary, they're still going to go with it, um, whatever it is. So that's that's the problem with beliefs, but and uh, some skeptics at least. But uh, yeah, if they had something from Guatemala, they'd say, well, how did they get here? It was, well, they probably came from North America, and of course, there's a trail of stories all throughout North America um, of these, you know, Sasquatch sort of critters. I think that it would do a lot. I think less so though if um, a, an Asian species was discovered. No, you're right for sure. Yeah. But it, it, any hominid species discovered would it would help? Yeah. Well, that, that's why I thought uh, having Gregory Fourth on the podcast a few weeks ago was so important um, because if he, if there it is. Uh, he's retired, I admit it. You know, he waited until he was done with his career before he stuck his neck out, which I don't blame him, of course. Um, but a very well-known and prominent anthropologist saying that, yeah, these things, the Liohoa might still be alive in, what was it, Eastern Flores. Um, saying that is a significant thing because if they're alive, what other species might be alive as well? Um, I don't think it translates directly into the Sasquatch, unfortunately, because people are just, you know, it is hold out with their their beliefs that they're not here. Um, instead of looking at the evidence that, yeah, there's a lot of evidence that says they are here. So what do we do about that? Right. I don't know why. I just have a gut feeling that they did go extinct probably 30, you know, last 20, 30 years. Really? Really? Well, I don't know. I've never been down. I mean, I haven't been there. I'd like to put my boots on the ground down there. But even that would be significant. Oh, Yeah. And that would might actually serve the Sasquatch better, frankly, in some ways, because if they if we do find out that deforestation and burning the, the rainforest and building their cities and doing all that sort of stuff in Flores, in Flores, where they're less industrial than perhaps in North America, and and they drove that species extinct. Well, that might do some wonderful things for uh, conservation of Sasquatches here in North America. Yeah, but driving any of these hominin species extinct um, would be, well, a tragedy, of course. Um, but it would also show the importance of conservation and what roles it plays um, in the in extant, the living species that are still out there, like Sasquatches. Yeah. Okay, well, here's, here's another question. This is from um, Aiden Mitchell. I'm curious your thoughts on how Bigfoot react and recover from wildfires. Of course, they can run away, but how might they recover their environment? More specifically, as an Oregon resident like Cliff, any thoughts on how Oregon resident populations of furry, the big furry fellas might might have been affected by wildfires and how they have recovered? So, Bob's wildfires and Bigfoots. What do you have? Um, not a whole lot. Uh, the people I know that had like habituation sites. So, because like, you know, fires usually don't burn uniformly, like every single tree, like in the 
square mile, like there's usually patches. And what these people tell me is that within a year or two, they're usually back in. They'll be they'll hang out in those little patches and go out from there. But they generally try to come back. They're like people, like I guess they, they want to. They're familiar with it. They you know they it's where their home is where the heart is. And from what I'm hearing from them is that they usually come back fairly soon, or they don't leave at all. If there's a, if there's enough remnant woods left, like along creek beds and stuff, whatever, they'll still stay in the general area. Yeah, and something else to keep in mind, too, is that uh, um, when the forest is burned away and the canopy is gone and maybe kills some, a lot of these trees and whatnot, that is an opportunity for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other plant species because those other plant species have been choked out by the canopy of the trees. They've been Their seeds have been dispersed or found their way to the shady understory underneath uh, the, the cedar forests and all that stuff. And a lot of times it's too thick for them to grow or grow healthily. Whereas uh, when the tree canopy is burnt away and these trees are dead, well, that opens up vast areas where the sunlight can hit the forest floor. And wherever the forest floor um, is bathed in sunlight, new sprouts come up. And it's just a thick, uh, brambly, sometimes brushy area full of highly nutritious plants. Um, remember that um, elk can browse and survive very well underneath the forest canopy, eating plants that grow there that are not as nutritious as the plants that grow in full sunlight. Elk accommodate that by having a longer digestive tract that gives more surface area and more time for their uh, intestines to extract nutrients from the food. Um, but, you know, deer don't have that. Deer are not as large as elk are, so they don't have that elongated intestinal tract to the degree as elk. So deer are forced to forage along in meadows and along roads and railroad tracks and all these places, uh, power line cuts, all these places where forest, uh, where the, uh, the sunlight hits the forest floor. That's where the most nutritious plants are. So after, a year or two after the forest fire, that's what you have where the forest once was. Um, and, you know, four or five years after, it's just a big brushy mess that's not only full of food for these animals, not only deer, but all herbivores, but also full of hiding spots as well. They can move um, and stay inside the plants and just stay well hidden from predators. So that is a perfect opportunity for Sasquatches to come in and start exploiting their environment once again. Not only eating the deer and the rabbits and the whatevers that are eaten, whatever is growing there, but also it gives them cover um, from prying eyes as well. So in a lot of ways, fires are a temporary setback for Sasquatches, but in the long run, probably doesn't better. That's, uh, I was just talking to someone about this the other day. Uh, the fire crew from Hoopa, rather the tribe out there, they're on a fire and they saw one of those things come walking out of the fire of a major fire, a huge Western fire. And it was kind of just looking at the ground like it was scavenging stuff. And it was, you know, jumping over hot spots and, you know, they said it looked like it was a little singed even in spots, but they, they all took off running away before it got to them. But it ended up running when it saw them. It kind of kept walking faster than it, it just it ended up running out of the fire line and in, in, into some trees that weren't burnt yet behind the fire guys. But, um, yeah, it's weird that they've been seen really close to forest fires before. Yeah, I do think fires are an opportunity to um, see some animals that have been displaced forcefully um, from their you know nooks and crannies that they tend to 
to hide in and live in, you know, and these nooks and crannies aren't, you know, like a space between logs. That's not what I mean. I mean, these isolated val- river valleys and whatnot, these smaller sort of tributary valleys that I think these things lurk in during the day. Um, they're forced to get out and move. I know here uh, in the fires in 2020, a friend of mine is a volunteer firefighter. He's also a Bigfooter. And um, one of the areas out by Colton that burnt uh, up Memelus Road and in Colton in that general area, it got burned out pretty bad. Uh, it's not even open still, by the way. Um, and, um, that's a great Bigfoot spot. We have a number of footprint casts, um, and footprint photographs. I've taken two casts, I think from the area, and there's been a number of footprint photographs over the last couple of years And that area got burnt. So, but where did they go? Well, I was talking to this guy, his name's Frank. And, uh, Frank was telling me that uh, one of his colleagues in the um, fire department, um, lives out in towards Beaver Creek, kind of in that general area, which is more towards town than um, out in the wilds, basically. It's in the same general area, but closer to town. And he said that he heard a Sasquatch bellowing in the river valley right behind his home. Um, So I think these forest fires just displace them and perhaps push them into areas where they perhaps wouldn't commonly go or readily go um, because out of force, they they basically have to go do that sort of thing. But, you know, they'll be back. They'll be back in not too long because they're going to go back and check out what's going on. And when they see all the herbivores feasting, they will also feast. Here, here. Okay, Scat Bunny Quaker. Bubba, I reckon you ain't got a hair on your ass if you don't give us a new story time. Is that a challenge? I've seen your ass. I'm not sure if I've, I should comment if it's hairy or not. It's not too bad. It's, it's pretty hairless. Yeah, you don't have like ponytails on it or anything. No, no, just small dreadlocks. Hey, Pruitt, do we have a story time to plug in already? Let me pull up that list real fast, and, I, and you can choose one, Bobes, if you have time for it. Okay, uh, red. Uh, this, these are my notes. Red light bulb gang. Okay. Um, you shit in a pizza box and threw it over the fence. I can't tell that one. That, that chick's still around. Is that's not the same one that like you crapped your pants when you're kissing her goodnight. No, that's a different chick. Okay. See, this should be in the podcast too. <laughs> it's just me listing all these. Things. Well, I, I I put up such a denial about the pizza box. Like that wasn't me. Like I'd be outing myself too much. Hmm. <laughs> Kenny Loggins addendum. Uh, you know, oh, I'll finish the addendum to the riot. Well, gather around, it's Bobo story time. Dude, he's gonna say some things that'll blow your mind. Classic. And if you say he's lying, he's gonna kick you behind. For sure. Once again, it's Bobo story time. Any description of felonious or criminal activity is being told here strictly for entertainment purposes and is in no way an admission of guilt or even true for that matter. You know what? I knew I screwed up that story. The I was talking about the riot, the LA street scene. The part I forgot that, that I forgot was the key part was at the end we lost Harold, and I ended up hot wiring his VW Bug with uh, Joe Zoll and Dave Campbell and another guy that shall remain nameless. And uh, we went driving back just on a joyride back down to the beach. And we had like seven kegs in this VW bug and then four dudes. And we were cranking music, you know, just we just go ripping back out of L.A. down to the beach, you know, just driving crazy. I was doing, before they even called it drifting, I was doing like Tokyo Drifts in this VW bug, like full of beers. It was nuts, dude. We get down by Harold's house and I'm just flying and Zoll and Campbell are egging me on. And I'm just like, third gear wide open pegged going downhill just wah, and i take the corner and slide and i did like a 
270, 270 degree turn, ended up slamming into this parked Honda and just hit it and like T-boned it dead on in this, uh, right, right in the driver's door between the uh, driver and passenger door, dead, dead hit. And it was against the curb, so just the force popped it up in the air, then it landed on top of the hood of the, the bug and like smashed a couple of kegs, you know, dented up the kegs and that way we had strapped up front. And it was, it was a scene that made so much noise and no one came out. We're like, what the hell, what are we going to do? So I called a tow truck. I'm like, well, they're going to call the cops. I'm going to get in huge trouble. I didn't have a license and all this stuff. And uh, we started pulling the car apart. And it was like four in the morning. And this cop comes driving by. And he just drives by super slow. It's Redondo Beach police. And just doesn't stop. It just slows down about one mile an hour. Just looking at it. And the tow truck guys got the our bug pulling it apart. And it, we had crowbars and pry bars. And we were prying the Honda off of it. It was, I mean, it was just making a god-awful racket. No one else came out. The cop drove by real slow, and he was very familiar with Zoll and Campbell. Those guys were constantly in trouble, and, and he just didn't stop. He just rolled by. We pulled the car apart. I was able to – by the time we got a hold of that woman, we didn't know where she lived or who she was. And by the time I got a hold of her like later that week, she'd filed a uh, claim and hit and run, and there was – she was all paid for. She wasn't worried about the deductible. She was just like, oh, don't worry about it. No big deal. And then Harold's car went to the salvage yard. And we um, uh, someone straightened out the frame for us a little bit, got the alignment kind of going somewhat better. And then we just went to the salvage yard. And back then, this is 30 years ago, you know, got like hood, bumper, lights, all that kind of new windshield, got all that stuff. And it was less than 300 bucks quite the deal that i think it's a deal enough that you didn't go to jail honestly oh dude i thought i was done like i was i thought it was gonna cost me thousands and thousands of dollars and totally get me screwed from ever getting my license and nothing happened it was like man that was like the luckiest break ever do you believe in karma <laughs> karma karma yeah even you might have been paying this uh, all along actually well, I did go to the woman. I, I finally found out where she lived because she uh, lived around the corner, a few houses up, or you know, actually in an apartment building. So I got a hold of her, and she was just like, didn't care. Just like, no, nah, insurance has got it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> there is there is such a thing called bobo luck. You are by far the luckiest person I have ever met, but you have to remember that luck runs into flavors, good and bad. And you are blessed with a tremendous amount of both. Yep, amen to that, or something. I don't know if I should be saying amen to that, but <laughs> amen to the good luck, not the bad luck. Yeah, yeah. Well, there you go, Bobes. So there you have it. There's our May Q&A. We do one of these a month. And if you have a question that you need to know Clifford Bobo's opinion on, feel free to reach out to us. Go to the website and you have two options to get that question to us. You can either just you know push contact and fill out a little form and let us know. Or the brand new option is a voicemail link. You might be able to hear your own beautiful melodious voice on the podcast um, by leaving a voicemail link on the contact page. So check that out. Two options to get your question to us. Other than that, we have t-shirts for sale, of course, sasquatchprints.com. I know you're going to look good in them, so go ahead and check one out, and maybe you want one. Maybe you want a hoodie. We have hoodies as well. But other than that, Bobes, take us home. Oh, you want me to crap into a pizza box, Cliff? (laughs) Yes, I do. (laughs) What a silly question to ask. Of course I do. Okay, folks. So, yeah, check out the website. And remember, you got 90 seconds to give us a little brief uh, synopsis of a setting or encounter you had. Leave a question for the show, for one of these Q&A sessions. Just check out the page, BigfootAndBeyondPodcast.com. And until next week, keep it squatchy. (laughs) 
Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. What do you think? Was that long enough? I think so. I just got to hear this pizza box story at some point. <laughs> oh, it's just I had to take, had to take a shit real bad. I was was after this chick for like two years when I finally got her. Went back to her place, and the um, toilet was like right next to it. Like her head was like three feet from the toilet. Like the door had like a two inch gap at the bottom. It was like hardwood floors. So, like everything echoed. Like if anyone was in there, you could just hear everything like twice as loud in the bedroom right there. And I had to take a huge shit. I was like, damn it. <laughs> And um, I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to, like, you know, do a coyote leave. So I was just like, what am I going to do? And there was a pizza box sitting on the table. I was like, God, I got to take a shit. So I, I went outside, shit in the pizza box in the backyard, wiped with news, with a newspaper, put it all into the pizza box, took it over and threw it over the fence into the neighbor's yard behind some bushes. <laughs> and then she's like, the next day when I'm talking to her or whatever, she's like, did you take a shit into a pizza box and throw it over the fence? I'm like, what? What are you talking about? No, no, I didn't do that. She's like, well, because we had a pizza box that's missing. Our neighbor said they found a pizza box full of human shit with wiped with newspaper and reported a guy like you, description of you. And I was like, that wasn't me. That wasn't me. Totally denied it. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with telling that story for a Bobo story time. <laughs> we should put this after the after the end song. <laughs> Only, only people who sit through the whole thing will get to hear it. Oh, uh, like the hidden track. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what do you think? Classy. <laughs> <laughs>